Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 21. Today, Paul and I are delighted to be joined by Dr. Merrick Barrow, Head of English and Creative Writing at the University of Huddersfield in the UK. Merrick is a specialist in Victorian and Edwardian literature with significant interest in critical and cultural theory. His current research projects include work on literature and magic, Robert Louis Stevenson's travel narratives, detective fiction, and the cultural history of deception. And it's in connection with the latter that he's curator of The Cottingley Fairies, A Study in Deception, an exhibition at the Treasures of the Brotherton Gallery at the University of Leeds, which is also available online. Merrick, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. It's lovely to be here. Before we start on the, the questions proper, as, as it were, Merrick, uh, could you just give us a, a, a brief background um, to, to the story of the, the, the Cottingley Fairies, just for those of our listeners who might not be over familiar with the, with the story? Yes, of course. Um, so the story begins in 1917 um, with Francis Griffiths, uh, who was age nine at the time, and Elsie Wright, who was age 16 and who was a cousin. Uh, Francis had come to the UK from uh, South Africa, where she'd grown up, um, uh, when her father was brought back to um, to fight in the war. And they were living together in, in a fairly small house in Cottingley in the West Riding of Yorkshire. The story of the fairies begins really with um, Francis, who used to go down to the beck that ran behind uh, the house that they were living in um, and regularly came back with uh, her shoes wet and got scolded by her mother. Um, and one day her mother demanded to know why she, what it was that sort of attracted her to go down to the, the beck all the time. And she announced that she went to see the fairies. This was met with um, scepticism and, and, and mockery, but her cousin Elsie, um, decided to back her up and she said that she'd also seen fairies there too. And after a few weeks of joking and mocking around this, uh, Elsie came up with the idea of playing a, 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 a kind of prank, you know, returning the favour um, on the adults in the family by uh, photographing some fairies, uh, cutting out, um, draw it. Well, she would draw the figures and then cut them out um, and then they would take a photograph of them um, by the banks of the, uh, of the beck. So they borrowed uh, Elsie Wright's father's camera. They went and took the photographs. And when they came back with the negatives, um, they, lo and behold, the, uh, the, the fairies appeared. And the, the adults were um, puzzled by them. I don't think anybody believed that they were fairies, um, but they demanded to know, you know how they'd done it. And the girls had made a pact that they were going to maintain you know, at all costs that these were genuine photographs. Mm. You know, They're gonna maintain the, the, the joke. Um, and so, after some um, more weeks going on, they uh, they said they'd go and take another photograph um, to prove it. So they they went and and took a, a second photograph uh, and, and brought that back. And more questions ensued, but they stuck to their story. And then nothing really happened for about three years mm. uh, after that. It's it was talked about in the family. People in the village knew about it, but uh, they, they'd stuck to their guns and, and hadn't um, confessed about how they had actually made these uh, fairy photographs. And then the two girls' mothers went to the, a lecture at the Theosophical Institute in Bradford, uh, which was about fairy life. And at the end of this lecture, they happened to mention about these fairy photographs and people there were very interested. So they, they brought them in. Um, and from there, it came to the attention of Edward L. Gardner, who was a, a fairly significant figure within the, um, the Theosophical mm -hmm. movement based in London. Um, so he came up to uh, 
well, he he wrote initially actually to to ask if he could um, if he could see the photographs, he could borrow uh, copies of them, um, and then from Gardner uh, taking uh, copies of the photographs and including them in, in the lectures that he was giving in London, they came eventually to the attention of Sir Arthur Conan mm -hmm. Doyle, uh, and when Conan Doyle heard about them, he initiated uh, a bit more of a thorough investigation of them with Gardner acting as the intermediary, um, and he then published the photographs in the uh, in the Strand magazine in the Christmas issue of uh, 1920 and then got the girls to take some more fairy photographs with new cameras that he prepared and um, those photographs were then published in the um, a couple of months later in the Strand magazine mm -hmm. in 1921 um, and then there was uh, an understandable uh, controversy lots of people um, thought that Conan Doyle had it kind of lost his mind really um and they th there was lots of skepticism lots of mockery uh, but the girls didn't at that point uh, admit to the um to the deception and indeed it carried on occasionally coming to to public attention again over the next six decades and it wasn't until 1983 uh really in as a result of a, a couple of more or less independent investigations one by uh, the uh, president of the British Photographic Association and another by uh, Michael Joe Cooper mm. um, that both more or less simultaneously published evidence to suggest that these were indeed um, uh, faked photographs. And it was at that point that the, the two by now old ladies um, admitted to what they'd done. Mm -hmm. um, and then it became clear that the whole thing had been a deception. Uh, that's a great summary of the of the case. I mean, one thing that immediately fascinates me is how it was that it came to run for quite so long? What perhaps was in the mind of the girls to stick with it, even when it was getting all of this public attention? I think, to some extent, once the once they'd gone beyond a certain point, it was very, very difficult for them to to back down from it. Mm. Um, and and I think that point came fairly early on. So when Gardner was making his initial inquiries, um, the family were not wanting to engage with it really um you know the, as i mentioned before the uh, the the mums had gone to this meeting at the theosophical institute and had um had shown the photographs these had been circulating amongst you know enthusiasts if you like um in the local area and they'd started to produce prints of them um you know to share um as this you know this wondrous um revelation when Gardner got in touch, Edward L. Gardner um, from, the, from the Theosophical Institute got in touch um, to ask for copies of them, um, the family didn't really want to engage with him. So the initial correspondence was with a woman called Edith Wright, who was no relation, but was a sort of intermediary. Mm. Um, and she sort of brokered a deal, really, um, with between Gardner and the, and the family um, to, to get access to the photographs. And I think really what seemed to be pivotal was um elsie wright liked the idea of kind of getting one over on her father mm. you know who i think had been particularly skeptical but also from what one gathers was quite grumpy um <laughs> and you know it it was a very I, I think it's also you have to kind of bear in mind the circumstances in which they've been living yeah um i mean by 1920 the the, the wright and griffiths families had, had, you know the war was over they'd, they'd you know, the father had come back from from the war, and and they were living. I think the Griffiths family were living in Scarborough by this point, mm. um, so they weren't all on top of each other. But at the time when the photographs had been taken, um, it was a very very difficult time. Um, you know, there were two families living in a very small house together. Uh, Arthur um, Griffiths was was fighting in the war. The stress of the situation had caused all of his wife's hair to fall out. Um, you know, and. It was, it's clear from the correspondence that, so that Arthur Wright was, you know, pretty open in saying he didn't really kind of like having them there and so forth. So, you know, you, you, this picture emerges of a, of a sort of fairly grumpy character. Mm. Um, and I think Elsie, who was, you know, a very, very spirited um, girl, rather liked the idea of, you know, her, her father ending up in believing these fairy photographs in spite of everything. So I think it was probably a little bit of mischief mm. that, that made her then initially agree to engage. But once they'd engaged and then once, particularly once Conan Doyle got involved and started sending, uh, you know, book copies of books and writing directly to them, you know, Conan Doyle, who was obviously by this point, one of the most famous literary celebrities in the world, mm. um, you know, to, to be kind of showered with this attention, 
um, offers of, of money for a dowry because by this point Elsie was engaged and she was going to be married and you know the, the family then starts becoming much more cooperative and and, and you know, engaging and when he says could you get some more photographs they said well of course we can get some more photographs you know and the girls at this point then start to be um kind of coerced into it almost by their family saying you know come on um you know you must yeah. take some more photographs for the nice you know sir arthur conan doyle <laughs> kind of thing mm-hmm. um and and obviously once they were published um they, they they were initially published with the the girls names changed um and you know some some semblance of an anonymity which didn't last for very long at all mm. um and then i think it just would have been impossible for them to uh to uh, to really back away from it they also said um or elsie wright said later on that um that they felt a kind of pity really or they, they felt sorry for conan doyle um that i think they were aware that he'd lost um his son um to the influenza pandemic uh, at the end of the war that he'd lost his brother-in-law and other family members and that um you know th- through that experience of loss i think they felt that that to some extent explained why um you know he'd he'd bought into the the story of the the fairies um and they didn't want to, him to be publicly publicly humiliated uh, and i think similarly with with edward gardner um those two in particular because they'd you know stake their reputations on it they 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 didn't really want to have them publicly humiliated and of course gardner carried on um you know he didn't die until i think the late 60s wow might might have even been later than that as you come to think of it um but but uh yeah so so it, it went on and on and on for decades in any case um and and they they only really admitted it in the end because you know they've been rumbled yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there's there's an interesting <clears throat> excuse me um and w- one of the things that's quite amazing about this this whole story is that um is that it hinges on these photographs which i i guess to our modern eye you know you look at them and they're they're quite clearly fakes but the the photographs themselves the original negatives don't exist do they and so what do we what are we actually looking at when we see the photographs that that Conan Doyle printed well that's I mean that's a really interesting question the photograph that uh, the the most famous photograph the one with Francis and the fairies on the bank with the sort of toadstools in front of her Mm. um that's the most famous one that was the first photograph that Elsie Wright had ever taken um, and then the second photograph uh, was of Elsie with a, a goblin figure, which was the first photograph that Francis had taken. But Francis was nine years old, so you know, even less adept at, um, at taking photographs than Elsie. So, so they were very underexposed. Uh, the particular the second one was was very underexposed, mm. and the first one was quite grainy. And even though it's rather beautifully composed, mm. because I think Elsie's got you know a, a, an extremely good artistic eye, mm. um, it was nonetheless quite a, a poor quality. Uh, photograph. When Edward Gardner got hold of the negatives, what he did was, um, well, he he asked a man called Harold Snelling to do two things. Uh, One was to evaluate whether the photographs were, had been faked up in a studio, whether they were double exposures or they'd been mocked up in some kind of um, sophisticated photographic studio. Harold Snelling being a photographic expert and particularly in producing various kinds of uh, special photographic effects. So, you know, he's a, an appropriate person to get to evaluate that because he would be able to tell through a kind of forensic analysis whether the photographs have been faked up or not. Mm. And and he looked at them and he said, no, they've definitely not been faked up in a studio. They're not double exposures. They, they've been taken out, you know, single exposure in the open air. And so that all sounded quite good. Gardner then said, well, could you improve the quality of the photographs so that they'll work whilst I'm given these lantern slides he wanted them to you know have maximum impact he wanted the 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 photographs kind of cleaned up really um so that's what he did he asked um harold snelling to to improve the photographs to and so snelling used some kind of special process which seems to involve various things so he he removed some of the foliage that was um towards the top of the scene he um he did some mechanical reduction with um uh, you know kind of grinding paste to 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 light in certain areas of it where it was overexposed or underexposed um and interestingly he also added details to the wings more or less by hmm. hand um so so he he you know in in the he's he's doing two things that seem quite contradictory on the one hand he's evaluating whether the photographs are fakes and on the other hand he's actually enhancing the fakes making them more 
convincing, more more aesthetically striking and, and more distinct. Um, and so this process involved enlarging them, it involved uh, various actual kind of changes to the, the photograph uh, structure itself, and then rephotographing and enlarging and rephotographing through sort of five stages, I think, um, they, when there was an, an analysis done by Geoffrey Crawley uh, of the British Photographic Society in 1982, um, he identified, I think, five stages to the process that Gardner had taken them through, the, at the end of which you get these glass negatives that are the ones that are in the Brotherton Library. Um, but Crawley's analysis of the photographs uh, concludes that all the prints that have ever been made and, and published and put into circulation are from the negatives that are in the Brotherton Library. And that when Gardner lodged them, although it was his estate that lodged them, but 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 mm. he, he the way that he labeled them, he intended them to be understood to be the originals. Mm -hmm. So so he kind of suppressed the original negatives, which is one of the layers of deception in the story, because because Gardner, you know, what, whatever happened to the original negatives, and it's not entirely clear exactly what happened to them, that they're not the ones in the in the in the um, in the Brotherton Library. Yeah, and they they are, I think, a fifth generation uh, improved mm. version. And so all the prints that we we know are are from those negatives. It's just they're not the originals. There's there's only I think one or possibly two extant prints from the original uh, negative. Wow, in mm. existence. That's quite amazing, isn't it? It's mm. you know incredible to think that uh, the, these images, which are so iconic, um, yeah. are not actually the 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 uh, original images. But I mean, also <clears throat> that sort of hints at one of the other odd elements to this story, which is the copyright situation on the on the photographs. Mm. And I think you made the mm. comment, Merrick, that the girls never saw a penny from this, and there's a there's a whole copyright ownership issue around around the prints. Yeah. So when the, uh, the when, when the question of publication was first mooted and Conan Doyle and Gardner were liaising with the family about that, th th this was to print in the Strand magazine and, and in a sister publication in the United States. The uh, the original idea was that they wanted to shield the uh, the girls and the family from um, unwanted, you know, intrusive. Uh, infringement on their mm. their privacy really um and and, and i and i don't for a moment doubt the sincerity or genuineness mm. of that i don't think there was any intention to try to um to cheat them um and it was really to try to encourage them to agree to publication by you know taking away some of the things that they might be concerned about um and part of that was that they would copyright the photographs um in gardener's name um, so again, the, the, the copyright wouldn't be a, you know, something that would be traced back to them, but it would only be a temporary copyright agreement just for the purposes of publication in the Strand magazine and the American um, sister publication, yeah. after which they were quite explicit, the copyright would revert back to um, the girls, you know, the, mm. the, who took the photograph as, as, as it normally would do. I think it's, it was complicated by um, a couple of things. One was that the, the family sort of disavowed well, disavows maybe not the right word but but they they didn't certainly didn't seem to pursue the, the financial aspect of it i mean partly because i think um it was it once the publicity um came to them uh, francis in particular you know hated it she she you know it, it kind of spoiled her life really in many ways so she wasn't looking to profit from it uh, in that kind of way that also Conan Doyle had, had, had given um, Elsie some money. They'd given them um, various kind of gifts, books, cameras, and this sort of thing as well. So I think they they felt like they'd they'd already kind of had some benefit from it. But also because all the prints were taken from these um, photographs, which had been changed by Gardner, you know, materially improved and changed by Gardner, he retained the copyright. Mm. Um, you know, the, the the negatives, as I said, went went back to the family. Um, but then there's there's some sort of question about whether they uh, Gardner then got them back later on. There's a there's a really intriguing correspondence that uh, crops back up in 1946 between this is in the ar archive mm. between Gardner and Edith Wright, you know the the initial yes um, intermediary who you know once she'd served her purpose, it's pretty clear from the correspondence she was frozen out and you know Gardner just didn't you know didn't get back to her when she <laughs> when she tried to contact him. So she wrote she writes this rather. Um, sort of sarcastic and bitter letter in 1946 to him, you know, saying, I still, I see you're still dining out in the Cosmic mm. Fairies kind of thing. <laughs> um, 
but but in, in that the, 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 this correspondence between them, there was this sort of suggestion that uh, I think in 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 the the last letter she wrote before that, which is back in the um, the nineteen twenty, she says the, the the negatives are back in my possession. I suppose you'll want them again. And then there's nothing until nineteen forty six. So we don't know where those negatives, you know, the original negatives ended up. Whether Edith Wright kept a hold of them, whether she gave them back to the family, whether she gave them to Gardner and he kept them, and you know they've been lost somewhere. Certainly, Francis and Elsie didn't um, seem to have them. They 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 didn't know what happened mm. to them. They thought that um, Conan Doyle and Gardner had never returned them. Um, maybe they went to their parents, and their parents, you know, weren't particularly interested in them, and they just got thrown out or, or broken or something. But mm. um, yeah, yeah, so so the copyright that that existed um, and that and that still uh pertains to this day is um is in edward gardner's estate's mm. name wow mm. amazing absolutely amazing presumably gardner's initial motivation was was genuinely wanting to use these photographs to 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 promote his theosophical ideas to to use them as proof of a higher order of beings and so on and then the the, the case just just took on a life of its own yeah i think that's right he uh he was quite explicit in his early correspondence with Conan Doyle about not wanting to bring the question of money into things because he felt that um, as soon as you started talking about money it would muddy the waters mm -hmm. you know it, it would it would give perverse incentives for the girls or the family to say whatever they thought was going to um, you know be the right answer so they they wanted to you know he was very clear he wanted to keep it a, a pure inquiry uh, in order to establish the truth because he felt it was really important it was really Conan Doyle who insisted on introducing the business elements into mm. it. And, and and not again, I think out of any sort of sense of, um, you know, avarice or, mm. or, or, or acquisitiveness, but simply, you know, Conan Doyle was a professional writer and, you know, he, his time was worth a certain amount. You know, he got a lot of expenses. He was um, supporting not just, you know, his own household, but also a, a hugely loss-making spiritualist bookshop, which was mm -hmm. really important to him. Mm -hmm. He was funding this lecture tour of Australia he was about to go on. Um, he was doing a lot of work that meant that he couldn't do other work, which would be making him money. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it was important to him to, you know, to value his time. But he, he said that he thought a fair settlement would be for 50% of the proceedings to go to him mm -hmm. because he was doing... The majority of the work and then for the the other 50 percent to be split evenly between gardner and the girls mm -hmm. but he, he he sort of left it to gardner to decide on that and i think because the girls weren't particularly proactive about it um and because there was all these ambiguities around it no, it didn't really kind of work out that the girls really got a proper contractual mm -hmm. arrangement about anything mm -hmm. what do you think it was that 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 drew conan doyle to this case in the first place uh, I mean, there seem to be a number of of of, of reasons. Uh, I mean, I mean, in in the preface to his book, The Coming of the Fairies, he he's very careful to differentiate the the fairy case from his main campaign for spiritualism. Um, but 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 mm. what do you feel is was his motivation? What 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 really drew him to this this particular case? Well, I think it was spiritualism. Mm. Um, I think that's that's what he was he was clearly really interested in. I don't. I mean, the, the Coming of the Fairies, um, where he you know he expands on. The, the contents of the, the original Strands magazine articles is, I think, quite an interesting book where it, it seems to me that Conan Doyle is is sort of trying to present a version of himself as being very um, <clears throat> sceptical and, and, and rational and objective mm. and so forth. Um, and I think it's, it's for the purposes of that, it's, it's quite important for him to, to draw a separation from um, from the areas where he's got this overt and, and clear public commitment to mm. uh, to spiritualism, mm. um, and so I, th I think you know to some extent he's he's, he's playing a rhetorical game with all of that. Yeah. Um, but he, I mean, the, the origins of his interest in it were that he was writing a series of um, articles for the Strand magazine about various aspects of the paranormal, mm. um, and he got one planned to write about fairies, and these were. There was a kind of general interest articles, really, mm. um, that were talking about, you know, the history of folklore and that kind of thing. It, it, it wasn't meant to be a kind of evidence-based analysis or case for fairies or anything like that. Um, and that that was the reason why David Gow, who was the editor of Light magazine, uh, you know, the spiritualist um, journal, 
got in touch with him when he heard about Edward Gardner's theosophical lectures mm. featuring these photographs and said to Doyle that, you know, he might want to, you know, find out some more to include them in this, uh, this article. Uh, it was round about this time that Conan Doyle was, um, his friendship with Houdini had, had reached a level where Houdini was trying to get um, spirit photographs out of Conan Doyle mm. um, and was pressing him for contacts with um, spirit mediums. And, you know, Houdini was working Conan Doyle, I think, fairly clearly mm. to try to sort of get access to people that wouldn't otherwise have had anything, anything to do with him. So he could, you know, debunk them. Mm. That was his main mm. objective. And Conan Doyle came across the fairy photographs at this point. And I think Conan, there's a letter, I think, uh, where Houdini asks for um, if he's got any spirit photographs mm. that he could, you know, show to him. And he says, I've got something even better. I've got photographs <laughs> of fairies. Um, but I think, the, you know, the, once he'd um, heard about them and then when he'd actually seen the photographs that he got from um, from Gardner, who, who sent him a copy, um, he started to, th to think that, you know, here is empirical proof, you know, and if you can have empirical proof of something supernatural, preternatural like fairies, his view was that that then becomes the opening of a gate. You've crossed a line, into, mm. you know, if you believe that, mm. then getting people to believe in spirit photography is is a short step mm. uh, believing in spiritualism more generally is, is a short step and so for him it was really um a strategic move i think to to um to present people with what he considered to be empirical evidence of the supernatural mm -hmm. and that was that was i think what's really really interesting to conan doyle because it's that connection between the material the you know the empirical and this sort of mystical beliefs that he's got. And it's the intersection of those things that seems to, you know, be a recurring interest and, and source of, of fascination for Conan Doyle, going back decades, really. Mm. Um, it's not just at this point. But I think that's that was the sort of the, the thing that the fairies and the fairy photographs really um, offered to him was this this way of, of, of providing a manifestation of the, the supernatural. Yeah, I think we... Yeah, just a just an aside on that. When I was looking at the coming of the fairies again recently, I was really struck by how Conan Doyle is setting himself up against the sort of norms of Victorian science. Uh, and he has this line: uh, "You know, the recognition of their existence, of fairy existence, will jolt the material twentieth century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud, and will make it admit there is a glamour and a mystery to life." And um, you know, later he says, "Victorian science would have left the world hard and clean and bare, like a landscape in the moon." But this science is in truth but a little light in the darkness and outside that limited circle of definite knowledge we see the loom and the shadow of gigantic and fantastic possibilities around us throwing themselves continually across our consciousness in such ways that it's difficult to ignore them. And, you know, you get that sense in which he's committed to the romance of discovery almost. Absolutely, yeah. I, 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 I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the other things about it, and I think this is where Conan Doyle saw himself, was that, um, I don't think he saw himself setting saw himself as being set up um, against science. Mm. I think he saw himself as participating in a debate within it. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so he saw materialism as sort of one strand within Victorian science, and he saw it really as as a form of bigotry, mm. the, a, sort of a closure of the mind to other possibilities. And so, you know, when you get um, people like Edward Clodd and so forth. Um, attacking Sir William, Sir William Crooks and Sir Oliver Lodge um, for being, you know, gullible and believing in spiritualism. Conan Doyle's view was, well, Sir Oliver Lodge and Sir William Crooks are eminent scientists. You know, they're much more eminent, you know, members of the Royal Society and the British Association for the Advancement of Science. You know, who are you to to challenge their credentials? That, he, mm. he, you know, so he, he placed himself on one side within that debate. And I mean, in the coming of the fairies, there's some fantastic. Um, sort of lines of argument was there's one where he talks about he he uses lodge's um theory of um of the ether uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, to to explain how um in the same way that uh, a a body can be uh, can disappear when it enters into water um that if if you pass into a different um set of kind of existential wavelengths or something like that that you could appear and disappear in the way that fairies do yeah. like um you know like a uh, I think he talked about a, a seal or an amphibian or something on the on the bank of a, a of a lake going into the water, and you can't see it when it's in the water, but it can move between the air and the water, and that's what fairies can do, moving 
you know, between two different states mm. across this etheric boundary. And he and, and he uses this to explain why fairies appear to children. Yeah. Um, because children have got more sensitive apperception. Their 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 senses are um, able to detect light wavelengths that uh, that that become desensitized in adults. And he's got this fantastic idea that at some point um some psychic spectacles will be involved <laughs> yes. and then everybody will be able to, to see this and um i mean one of the one of the wonderful things that happened um whilst i was preparing for the exhibition and, and kind of word got out about it a little bit was that somebody from uh, sotheby's contacted me and said we've got some of these psychic spectacles you know uh-huh. that were made in 1920 something and and they're, they're like you know the old-fashioned leather flying goggles oh, wow but with with their with darkened lenses and then they're, they're lined with this kind of fluffy you know fur um and the idea is you put these things on and they were fairy viewing goggles um and i said well conan doyle literally describes these psychic spectacles so they they then advertised them they auctioned them as psychic spectacles and um yeah they, they sold last year i think it was <laughs> but um it's fantastic um but but that idea that um that it was something that, that was so you know based in physics mm. Um, and that that gave you know kind of credence to it. That it wasn't just appealing to some sort of mystical ideas that required belief, but that there was you know solid, hard um, uh, science of physics uh, behind it that could explain it. And mm. you know, and he's he's constantly reaching for these speculative explanations of things. Mm. And for him, I think he saw that materialist refusal to to entertain the idea of these kind of wild speculations as being closed-minded, and that. Mm that he and people like Sir Oliver Lodge were, were the true spirit of scientific inquiry. Yeah, absolutely right, yeah. Do, do you think this is also the, um, the the sort of background clash in, in Conan Doyle's own own origins and that, that he's from an artistic family um, and he himself has had a, a scientific training as a doctor, but his father, uh, Charles Doyle, and his uncle, Richard Doyle, were both notable fairy painters. So he's grown up with this in his background, this whole cultural aspect of, of fairies. And, and, and Andrew Lysett argues in his biography of, of Conan Doyle that, that part of the reason for, for Doyle wanting to prove the, uh, the photos are genuine is, is almost to justify his father, who was, was written off as, 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 you know, off with the fairies and, 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 and mad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can... I can... I can accept that argument, mm-hmm. I think, to, to some extent. Um, clearly, Conan Doyle wanted to, um, wanted to kind of redeem that, that family legacy and, and, and was interested in, uh, in the fairy paintings um, and, and, in, and in all of that and was, and was you know, justly proud of it as well. Um, and his own relationship to, um, to his father, I think, is quite complicated mm-hmm. um, and to his uncle as well. Um, it, it, it is fairly complicated. I, I'm not sure that, I mean, f- from what I've seen of what he's written, it, it does seem to me that his interest in the fairies was, um, at least on the face of it, you know, primarily a means to an end. Um, yeah. And mm. I think it probably was quite nice uh, to to have that um, endorsement of fairies and the idea that, um, that yeah, that, that these intuitions uh, of his, his father and, and uncle have some kind of greater substance than just being these sort of evanescent fantasies. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think I can, I can sort of buy that argument, but I, I still do think that ultimately he was really interested in the fairies as a means to an end for his, you know, his agenda with spiritualism. Mm. Mm. I mean, one of the things I was really taken by in, in both the, the online exhibition, which we, we've been able to see, but also in your talk was Conan Doyle as a tactician in a way, you know, by, mm. by this time he's a seasoned campaigner. You've got Edelgie case behind him, um, crime, the crime of the Congo. Uh, you know, he's been a political campaigner on a whole range of different fronts. And it really struck me that he 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 brings a lot of that to bear. The fact that there's the exchange, I think it's the exchange with Gardner where he's he's already commissioning a second set of photographs, knowing that he's going to release the first set and use that to draw the fire and then he's going to hit people with the second mm. set there's quite a lot of yeah you know almost a military strategy gone into mm. how he's going to fight this campaign absolutely i mean his his rhetoric in those um th- those those uh, telegrams uh, and and so forth between them from when he's on on the election tour in australia um are, are steeped in military rhetoric mm. um i mean of course during the the war conan Doyle wrote a lot of articles for the strand magazine about the the military campaigns of the of the war so all the kind of you know 
tactics of, of attack and counterattack and all that sort of stuff will be very familiar to to him anyway. And he was a he was a war correspondent mm-hmm. as well in the um, in the eighteen nineties for for a little while. So I think all that military tactician stuff, um, you know, he he would have he would have uh, felt very much uh, at home with all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he talks about li- having left uh, a time delay mine. You know, yes. we went off on the, the left tour and, and left Gardner sitting on top of it. And and he says it with a kind of glee mm. as well. You know, he, he knows. I think I think this is one of the things about the about the whole case that, that I think is really interesting is that it's not as though he was surprised by the reaction no. to the publication of the photographs. He he knew that skeptics that he's he's uh, you know his opponents his his enemies probably I think he would would have seen them by this point would have leapt on it as an opportunity to um to 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 ridicule him to you know to to criticize the photographs and pick out all the things so he, he, he to some extent he was keeping his powder dry you know to have this second set of photographs to to publish straight afterwards um and he'd taken a lot of care with the second set of photographs to do exactly the things that um people like harry price um who was mm. um a member of the society for psychical research but also a a, a friend and associate of Harry Houdini, who you know was exposed and debunked um, fraudulent spirit mediums. Um, he, he used a lot of the techniques that were used there in order to be able to show that yes, we've done the things that that you, that you would have done to prove that they were frauds and they they weren't. So there's the uh, the same year that he published the co- the coming of the fairies. Um, he, he published uh, the case for spirit photography, yeah. which was about the the, the William Hope. Uh, the cruise circle and and the um, uh, and Harry Price had, uh, had caught William Hope in a in a fraud by having some um, photographic plates marked with X-rays that he then gave to Hope and when they were returned with the the spirit manifestation on them the the X-ray markings weren't there so Hope had substituted a different plate for the one that Price had given him. Mm. Conan Doyle um, had the plates that were given to Francis and Elsie for their second group of photographs all marked in a similar kind of way. Um, he gave them cameras which he'd you know had bought so you know all those questions about things that might have have, have been done to fake the photographs were taken into consideration but he didn't make any announcements about those things he i think he wanted to get draw as many of those sorts of criticisms as possible that he could then answer with a second set of, yeah. of photographs with all the information about how they've been done and that, again that is is very very strategic and tactical he knows that he's entering into a campaign he's not just publishing them naively or not completely naively anyway yeah and it's and 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 it's a pretty vitriolic exchange i mean uh, i think you you mentioned in your talk about um you know sort of the marginalia is it by edward clod um yes you know he said he sounds like he's got they've they've both got sort of very het up on both <laughs> on both sides yeah i mean i think when when conan doyle first um you know became public in his conversion to spiritualism um you know he'd, he'd been interested in spiritualism going back to the 1880s mm. um you know and it, and i think it always you know leaned towards the idea that it you know, he felt there was something in it, but he'd he'd always sort of sat on the fence a little bit. When he when he finally publicly converted, I think he started to experience a, a different set of responses to it because he was he wasn't, you know, a group of people who were part of a group of people who were interested in spiritualism. He was now, you know, leading the the campaign for for people to accept it, and so he he became I think a, perceived as a target. Yeah. Um, and particularly because he had such prominence, not only as a, a, a you know very recognisable literary figure, but also of all things, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Um, so, so when Conan Doyle gave his uh, his endorsement to things like the fairy photographs, I think it, you know it, it drew a tremendous amount of hostility, not just because they felt he was wrong, but because it was as much about influence on public per, uh, perception and public opinion as anything else. So it became quite personalised. Um, you know, they were seeking to to destroy his reputation, to have him perceived as a fool, um, as gullible, and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, Ed, and Edward Clod, I think, you know, he he wasn't just being strategic about it. I think he felt, you know, intensely furious yeah. um, with people like Conan Doyle um, for, for you know for for buying into uh, spiritualism and 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 fairies and and all the rest of it, and then publicly endorsing it. So, yeah, his copy. I mean, he he wrote a book. Um, about spiritualism and you know and evaluating the case for it which in itself is incredibly rude about <laughs> conan doyle and you know and, and the like 
but then not only uh, is that, but then he he collects all these clippings where other people have been rude about Conan Doyle um, and pastes them in, and then writes his own kind of comments in the margins. Um, there's there's photographs for the Strand magazine, uh, you know, of the, the the first set of fairy photographs. There's there's uh, letters or notes that Conan Doyle has sent to Claude. Um, you know, really quite sort of good humoured ones, saying you know, there's there's one where Conan Doyle said. You know, you and I disagree on this stuff, but I've got the advantage because if we meet in the hereafter, I'll be able to say, hello, Claude. It turns out I was right. Kind of thing. Well, you know, Claude's, Claude's pasted this into his book and written these kind of like furious, grumpy, um, marginal comments about what an idiot Conan Doyle is. Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, that's, and he entered into um, public debates with Joseph McCabe, who was another, I think he was, he was, he'd been a Jesuit priest who turned arch kind of anti-spiritualist skeptic. Mm. Um, and and various other people in the um, in the kind of scientific establishment or, or kind of rationalist press association, who were really going hammer and tongs to uh, to, to get Conan Doyle, um, you know, to disprove the points he was making, to to generally uh, you know pull his arguments down and 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 reduce his um, his reputation to the point which uh, when the fairy photographs came to his attention he, and. Doyle sent them to Sir Oliver Lodge for his opinion. Sir Oliver Lodge's close associate, uh, J. Arthur Hill, um, who was, you know, also a long-standing associate of Conan Doyle, um, wrote to Conan Doyle and said, "I'm, I've, I'm convinced that Edward Clodd's behind this. You know that he's oh. the whole thing has been set up to try to discredit the creator of Sherlock Holmes because, you know, once your reputation's been um, trashed." Uh, people say, well, if the creator of Sherlock Holmes can be deceived mm. in this way, then, you know, what good is anybody else's testimony? Yeah. Um, so they, you know, Hill thought the whole thing was was a setup from uh, from Edward Claude and that, um, you know, it gives you an idea of the, the level of, of hostility that there was towards um, Conan Doyle and, and spiritualist movement that was emanating from from Claude and, and, uh, and his associates. Mm. And, and, and Sherlock Holmes comes into this as a very double-edged sword because i mean it's the it's the reason why conan doyle has the platform really to be able to to yeah. make his case but also his opponents are very happy to use that against him and that's probably the most abiding thing that anybody knows about the cottingley mm-hmm. ferry's case which is that you know how do, how is it possible that the man who created the great rationalist detective <laughs> sherlock holmes can believe in this stuff yeah absolutely um there's a I was I was doing some research in the University of Cambridge Library where the um, the archives for the Society for Psychical Research are held, and I was looking through some of the correspondence between Conan Doyle and Sir Oliver Lodge, and and J Arthur Hillow, as mentioned a moment ago, um, sort of acted as secretary for Sir Oliver Lodge. So he'd, he'd intercept the mail, he'd read it, and then he'd sort of write on it to Sir Oliver Lodge what he needed to do. Like you you know you can ignore this or just write back saying thank you or whatever it might be. And the correspondence from Conan Doyle, they, they sort of, Conan Doyle started writing to Sir Oliver Lodge, you know, very, very um, kind of enthusiastic, gushing kind of um, messages where he was expounding his own theories about things. And and Hill's sort of take on it was, well, you know, you, you need to respond. You probably don't need to kind of respond in detail to the things that he's saying, but, you know, you need to sort of keep him on the side. And then on the outside of one of the envelopes, he, he writes, um, it would be very useful to have a Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. on our side yeah. um, in in court or or in, in, in just for public opinion. Mm. And you know, part of the reason that they were keeping Conan Doyle on side was because mediums were being uh, prosecuted and imprisoned around this yes, time under the Vagrancy mm-hmm. Act. Um, so there, there was there was a whole kind of other dimension to it there as well that um, you know the the spiritualist movement was was kind of semi criminalised. Mm. Um, because of, of uh, these actions that have been brought about by uh, initially by Edward um, uh, Lancaster, and um, and you know, and it was emerged from the scientific establishment um, wanting to uh, wanted to challenge um, it on, on as many fronts as possible. How much do you think, as well, it is to do with the timing? Um, the fact that you've got this story emerging at the, at the end of the First World War. Uh, which is is a, a hoax that's got out of hand, and then at the beginning of the First World War, you had the whole story, the Angel of Mons, which derived from Arthur Macken's short story, The Bowman, which which then got syndicated. Um, this, this was the idea of 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 
bowmen from the Hundred Years' War, their spirits appearing to help the British troops during the, the retreat from Mons. And this idea got, got into the culture in, in a big way once it was syndicated. And, and soldiers who were actually on the retreat would then insist they'd seen these, these, these creatures. Uh, and this, the, mm. the public took this up. And, and same with, with the Cottingley fairies, that, that it just then takes on a life of its own. But is it this particular time in the First World War that really, really gives all this stuff impetus and, and the loss of life and the, the incomprehensibility of, of, of the war um, as opposed to you know, the age of Victorian rationalism? Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. It's um, the the impact upon the war, and and it's you know it's a different kind of war than anybody's experienced mm. before. Um, so yeah, that that whole thing of the whole generation of of young men going off and just not coming back, that that question of what's happened to to people mm. um, is disappearing. And you know the, the the First World War also you know resulted in the um, the, the the um, the tomb of the unknown soldier, didn't it? Which is mm. I think in a, in a different kind of way, an attempt to address the same sense of loss that you know it might have been your son or your husband or whatever because the whole point was it's somebody that they, they definitely don't know who it is so it might be them that 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 tremendous desire to have some sense of of kind of you know this person not just kind of vanishing out of the world but they them being somewhere mm, and and the, this higher order of beings this this beneficence the, this the, the need for this in people's minds for this to exist otherwise you you'd be driven mad by by the results of the war yeah i think i mean the the, the fairies i mean particularly those photographs are so um sort of charming and enchanted aren't they they mm. they they, they kind of hint at a, a different kind of world that's that's so different from the you know what what's uh, people have encountered in the war. I mean the the other thing that's that's sort of interesting in relation to the war that connects to this I think is um, what Frances Griffiths um, writes about in a, her memoir. Mm. So she started writing a memoir in um, in, in the ni- 1980s, late 70s actually, mm. um, about the Cottingley Fairies, and she wanted to tell the story. Um, from her own point of view, um, which and then rather ungraciously got uh, got gazumped by um, by Joe Cooper publishing. Mm. You know he was working with her on it, and then he, he published uh, broke the story himself. Mm. Um, so she stopped writing the memoir. But but in her account of uh, the early days when she um, arrived in Cottingley, she talks about seeing. Um, she, you know she she maintains that she she did see fairies, but they weren't these evanescent sort of sylph-like wing figures they were little men mm. and they were platoons of soldiers that um that, that marched up and down the, the the bank and um they're very very similar to the descriptions that she gives of traveling um on the troop ship and then on the trains up ah. from uh, from plymouth mm. where they landed when she came from south africa up to cottingley she talks about seeing them as like railway porters one of them was a regimental sergeant major and and it's difficult not to to sort of contextualize that in relation to what she's feeling about her father who's gone off to fight on the western front who mm. was a regimental sergeant major you know and who would um you know parade the soldiers around so that sort of sense that the fairies in her mind as well as more you know, more generally in the in the public mind are are acting as some kind of compensatory um manifestation of of uh, you know the things that everybody is so so troubled by mm. in relation to the war mm. i mean there's a huge upsurge of interest in in spiritualism around this time that's you know you, you can you can see quite empirically actually if you um google has this um thing called an engram where you can type words in, you can look at the, um, the you know the number of occurrences over time of mm. these words in in all the publications that have been digitised, and if you put spiritualism in to this Google engram, you get nothing prior to the late 1840s when the Fox sisters mm. you know, first started mm. spirit rapping, and then it, 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 it surges up around the time of the American Civil War, mm. then goes down again. Then there's a, there's a, a big resurgence of interest in the late. Uh, 19th century and then it goes down again and then from the start of the first world war it goes almost vertical the graph wow. and then it get, and then it goes to 1920 and then it just sort of tails off and never recovers mm-hmm. um it's interesting to think that the cottingley fairies might be the reason why you know spiritualism never recovered because of you know conan doyle's gamble on the on the photographs not paying off yeah but it's very very clear you know you can see it with the american civil war and you can see it with the first world war that you have these huge you know, surges of interest in spiritualism around this time when people are dealing with this huge industrialized slaughter campaigns. Mm. It's fascinating to think that this could have been the nail in the coffin for the spiritualist movement. 
Yeah, I mean that's my that's my 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 guess is that what Edward uh, J. Arthur Hill writes about Edward Claude, you know, his suspicion that Claude is trying to ruin Conan Doyle's reputation as a as a way of finally defeating spiritualism. Mm. You know, he was clearly alert to the possibility that this would be devastating for the spiritualist movement if Conan Doyle's gamble, you know, was proved to be wrong, as indeed it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, and even though Elsie and Francis didn't um, publicly admit until 1983 that they, they'd faked the photographs, I think um, it was very clear from the, a lot of the public reactions that people saw them as being you know, manifestly fakes. I mean, they weren't necessarily sure how it had mm-hmm. been done exactly. Um, mm. But I think as time went on, it became even more clear. There, there are mm. still those who believe that the fairy, the fairy photographs are genuine, that they really did see fairies, of course. But um, I, th- I think probably for most people, uh, it was it was uh, it discredited mm. spiritualism as well. There's, there's a kind of interesting circle in there as well, where you mentioned the Fox sisters. So had their, their case in in 1848 in Hydesville, New York, where again it's it's two adolescent girls. Are, are involved with 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 starting this what may well have been a hoax in itself, and kickstarting the modern version of the spiritualist movement. And then the you know, if if it starts with with two adolescent girls and then almost finishes with with two adolescent girls, there's there's um, there's a, a kind of rather nice symmetry about that in a way. Well, there there is, yeah. I mean, the the similarities between the two uh, the two instances are very striking. Um, I think it it also in many respects. Um, illuminate certain aspects of the, the gendered dimension to this as well. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons why Conan Doyle um, was so amenable to accepting the the, you know, the veracity of what was said was because he thought, well, they're these two nice girls. They wouldn't, um, you know, they wouldn't, A, be so dishonest as to perpetrate this hoax, but also they wouldn't be capable of, you know, putting together such a sophisticated mm-hmm. fake photograph. You know, so he, he underestimated them on, yes. on both fronts. Yeah, uh, there's there's also that 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 line. I think it was um, in one of Gardner's letters where he talks about the innocence of not just girls but also of youth, isn't it? And particularly prepubescent youth, really, because he has that yeah. line about you know, I fear now that we are late because almost certainly the inevitable will shortly happen. One of them will fall in love and then hey presto. Yeah, so that that idea that um, I think that that the onset of um, of women's adult sexuality mm. is sort of in, incompatible with um with this kind of um access to to fairy perception um a, a, again is part of that and and the association of fairies with a yeah a kind of prepubescent innocence mm. particularly of, of 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 girls as well it's i mean it's conan doyle had this um kind of old-fashioned gentleman's kind of attitude towards women didn't he yeah um mm overall a sort of chivalrous chivalric kind of um kind of view of them and i, I think it, it partly you know plays to that doesn't it that um his, his view of the girls his, his his unwillingness to to consider them as, as capable of deceit but also this investment in them as in some way being kind of pre-sexual i mean mm. elsie was 16 at the time she was 19 engaged to be married when the second group of photographs yeah. were were taken and it's kind of well you know sooner or later <laughs> yeah definitely i think we should we should really talk about the exhibition itself and how how it came about because i mean this is you know clearly you've done an enormous amount of research into this and you've uncovered whole areas of the the story that have been beyond the reach of 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 other scholars for a very long time so you know first of all thank you for that but also i mean when you came to uh, preparing the the exhibition what was at the front of your mind and what was there anything that really surprised you when you started to get into the vaults and you were able to dig around the, the the resources that were there I, and there were a few things that surprised me I, I think i've managed to include most of that in the exhibition so the fact that the negatives weren't the original negatives was was probably the biggest um surprise mm. um there was also that correspondence between gardner and, and edith wright which i found intriguing mm. and I, I i couldn't find a place really to include that without it feeling like it was disappearing down a rabbit hole <laughs> um but there's a whole separate um kind of strand to this about you know what happened to the original negatives um there's 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 a um there's another sort of fascinating story which again didn't make it into the exhibition about um a second set of um photographic negatives that uh, that were auctioned in 2001 um 
Edward Garner left, uh, when he died, left a briefcase that contained various of his effects, including a complete set of um, negatives, which were labelled as being the ones that were used for making the lantern slides and all the prints for publication. Yeah. So um, there's this you know, possibility that actually the ones in the Brotherton were not quite the final generation, but there was a, a, a final set made after that, which are mm. actually the ones that, that Gardner had for himself as the originals. Um, those That bag was sold and is now in the Utsunomiya Ferry Museum in Japan, just outside mm. Tokyo. Um, and and those negatives now seem to have gone missing as well, interestingly. So there's a, there's a, there's a, whole, there's a whole other kind of sort of layer of, of kind of fascinating stuff there. But I mean, in terms of what I wanted to do with the exhibition, mm. I think what really struck me about it as I, you know, almost immediately was that this, this wasn't the kind of straightforward narrative that, um, that I thought it was, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd heard some, some things about the, the cottony fairies and there's a, there's a sort of a myth about it, isn't it? That these girls, you know, hoaxed Conan Doyle to put it in its most simplistic terms. And that's not really what, no. what, what happened at all. Um, and the, the things that struck me about it were that the, the girl's story had been to a large extent mar uh, marginalised because of Conan Doyle's celebrity, which, you know, that had been the thing that everybody had really been interested in, you know, that question about how the creator of Sherlock Holmes could have been taken in. So it, it all becomes about that. Um, and I thought there was a, this really interesting story um, about the girls and, and what had happened around them, but also the, the deceptions that had been involved in Ed, um, Edward L. Gardner's involvement in the in the case, the the improvements that he made to the negatives, the suppression of the originals, which he didn't really tell anybody about, mm. um, and then Conan Doyle's own kind of self-deception. Really, you know, he he uh, presents himself as as being an objective um, adjudicator, really yeah. looking at the evidence that's been presented and saying, well, you know, you could look at it this way, you could look at it that way, but I'm satisfied on the balance of evidence and the, the rigorous testing that we've put it to that, uh, that, that as far as I can see, this is all genuine. So he presents himself as that kind of objective, almost outside observer of it. But of course, that's not what he was at all. You know, he was very, you know, deliberately um, conducting a campaign that, that was strategic and um you know was calculated to have a certain effect and then he had his counter-attack up his sleeve and all the rest of it um and it's it's the intersection of those sort of three different stories really that i wanted the exhibition to try to capture um and i in in the exhibition text i describe it as an accidental conspiracy mm. um you know normally a hoax is a deliberate conspiracy to deceive but i think what you have with this is is a series of deceptions you've got the girls with the, the the sort of family prank you've got Gardner with the suppression of the originals and the enhancements of the um of the negatives um and then you've got Conan Doyle pretending to be objective when he's not really been objective at all and with his global reputation and and the the role that Sherlock Holmes plays in all of that it it serves to amplify um the other deceptions and give them a, a resonance and reach they wouldn't otherwise have and and so the exhibition was was trying to you know take this sort of layered history really of, of, of at least three very different stories and different kinds of deception and how the intersection between those things is 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 what we think of as the cottony fairies but it's not a single story it's not a single strand i don't think mm. no it's fantastic well um i think we're getting towards the end of the the podcast so i think we better wrap it up here but just to say i think you've uncovered an amazing amount of um, new insight into the Cottingley Fairies case. And it's been fantastic to talk to you uh, mm. uh, about the exhibition and, and about the case more broadly. How can people access the, the exhibition? This is open to the public uh, for a while longer. Yeah, it's um, so it's at the uh, Treasures of the Brotherton Library Gallery, um, which is in the Parkinson building at the University of Leeds. Um, it's open on weekdays. Um, it's not currently open at weekends uh, and obviously access to the the gallery will to a large extent be determined by the the national situation um in terms of the the pandemic mm. but it but it's open to the public at the moment so it's it's free of charge you can just you know wander in off the street into the parkinson building and, and look around the exhibition uh, and it'd be great to have lots of people coming and seeing it there's some fantastic material in there we've got cameras in there one of the cameras that um that, that belong to um francis griffiths and another camera that's a um, 
the same as the the model of the original um, camera that was used for the first two photographs. They've, those have been loaned by the National um, Science and Photography Museum in Bradford. Um, so, and that's that's on that exhibition is on until November 2022. So there's there's almost another year to run. Brilliant. So plenty of time for people to get up there and and, and view it. That's fantastic. Look, thank you so much for joining us today, Marek. We've really enjoyed it, and um, we wish you all the best with the exhibition. Thanks, Merrick. Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you. So thanks again to Merrick for joining us on the podcast. It was fascinating to hear his uh, insights into this multifaceted story. Uh, Paul, what have we got on the podcast next time? Next time, we have a very dark story set during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, the Lord of Chateau Noir. You couldn't really get further away from the Cottingley fairies than that, could you? Not really. (laughs) So thank you very much for joining us. And until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.